On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we will be talking to Graham Mackay, the Hamilton Spectator's outstanding editorial cartoonist about COVID stuff and about U.S. politics stuff and about cartooning and about Nazis. Of course. Why wouldn't we talk about Nazis with Graham? Stick around. You'll find out why. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is Friday evening. That means we do a little thing here called the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. Bring someone in who can uphold the end of the bargain to to bring that brightest level of conversation. And I got to tell you, it's one of my favorites today. Guy who is, I think, the best at what he does in all of Canada, and that is drawing editorial cartoons. Uh, his name is Graham Mackay from the Hamilton Spectator. Sir, how are you these days? I am wonderful. It's so good to uh, see you again on the radio. Yes, to uh, to talk to another human being who's not family. I mean, we love our families, but it's occasionally nice to talk to someone who's not. We love our colleagues, and it's, uh, you know, you're a colleague of mine at the Helen Spectre. I haven't seen you since, what, March, middle of March? And uh, yes. this, is, this is the only way we communicate, so it's wonderful to do it in CHML country. Well... So I have a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about, and some of it is is uh, deep, and some of it is uh, newsy and everything else. But I I wanted to ask you about something first before we get into the the heavy lifting, because there was a story that got touched on this week on the show, and I thought I've got to bring it up again when Graham is on here. There was, a, do you remember the um, a year ago or thereabouts? There was a piece of art, and I used the word art in quotes of a banana that was duct taped to a wall and it was called art and sold to a collector for $150,000. Remember that story? I do. Yes. It was a fresh piece of banana, right? It, it was, fr- yes, it was fresh. It was fresh, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was, it sold for $150,000. Well, now that piece has been donated to the Guggenheim Museum in New York, sans banana. I guess the banana eventually saw better days. And so they have donated a piece of duct tape to the museum, which the museum is thrilled to have, they say. So, uh, you know, no one is better um, positioned to answer this question than you. Well, what 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 qualifies as art? Can, can literally can anything be art, Graham? Uh, well, I am no expert on art, and um, sure you are. Uh, well, I do I do cartoons, and and cartoonists are always arguing with uh, you know the art community that what we do is a form of art, although we're constantly being dismissed. Uh, that, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, one of our communications to one another, you know, has been, you know, we've had to clear out our stuff from the Hamilton Spectator, and you sent me a photo of your first visit to the spec after what a four months absence, and you sent me a picture of a banana and what it looks like after what four months of yeah. I forgot it on my desk when I left, and it has stayed there as an archaeological artifact. Right. It was petrified and, and completely <laughs> black, so I can imagine um, what what the piece of expensive art at the Guggenheim or wherever this was, um, what it looked like. So you're telling me that the duct tape is the thing that now exists now? The banana has actually disintegrated? Because I, I well, find that kind of odd. Yeah, the banana, well, whether it's disintegrated or the owner got hungry because he spent all of his money on a banana and a piece of duct tape and couldn't afford food. So he said, I got to eat it. I got to survive here. I don't know. 
<laughs> but I, I, I look at this and I think, Graham, like we've seen modern art installations before where yeah. someone, you know, I don't know, dumps a bag of rocks on the ground in a corner of a museum room and goes, right. this is the state of world affairs. And, and it's like, mm-hmm. no, you just dumped rocks on the ground. Or I remember there was one, and I'm not making this up, where someone left a pile of, it was either diapers or feminine hygiene products. And it was supposed to be some commentary on something. And I was like, you know, come on, really? like, but I don't know, from your perspective, is, is there, can literally anything be art if you say it's art? Well, you know, unfortunately in the art world, there's, there's the regular folk like you and I, and believe me, I go into art galleries. I love going to art galleries. I, I usually whip through the contemporary art section because I, I often see stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's, it kind of bewilders me why it's there. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately there's, there's the people like us, the common folk, and then there's uh, an elite group of people who do the bidding for the art community community and they define what art is. And that's just the way it is. And, you know, you can shout and scream about, and plenty of people do, but they, they get shut down as, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we know what we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax. You're not deep enough. Intellectually, you're not deep enough to be able to understand the meaning of this. And and I always think, you know what? No, no. I think what this is, is a true life example of the emperor's new clothes where someone just needs to tell you, no, you just bought a banana for $150,000, but Mm -hmm. that would, that would show how simple we are. Well, apparently I think with art galleries though, you know, um, they're often, I, I mean, I go into art galleries and I, I, I'm surprised sometimes at how empty they are. Um, but then I'm not so surprised because some of these art galleries are just stuck on this old thinking that, well, we know better than, than the rest of you. Um, mm-hmm. Operas are the same way, but now you have pop opera. And that's the other thing, you know, if you want to fill seats, you're not going to, you're only going to fill the seats and get interest if you play the stuff that people know, you know, the yeah, Madame butterfly and that sort of thing. If you start playing all this contemporary stuff, you're going to get um, canceled subscriptions and that sort of thing. So they do it to their own detriment. But with the- I, uh, we got to take a quick break here, but I do remember about three years ago, maybe four, I don't know that the Hamilton art gallery had an exhibition of Ken Danby's work. And I mean, Ken Danby's work to me is incredible. It's so realistic. It's hyper realistic. It's amazing that he mm-hmm. can do what he does or did what he did. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote a piece about it because I wrote about At the Crease, the very famous painting of the goalie. And I had a number of people write and go, Ken Danby's a hack. Ken Danby, you know, so literal, whatever. It's like, well, okay, clearly I'm missing the point then because to me that's pretty impressive what he does. But I guess he didn't just throw a paint bucket against a wall and charge a million dollars for it. And so, yeah, call him a hack, I suppose. No. Anyway. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Graham, um... Being editorial cartoonist, I want to get into some of this COVID stuff that's been going on today, but um, for since March now, so whatever it is, 190 days since we really got into this, uh, every single day, potentially, you could end up drawing a cartoon about COVID. How, how do you do that? How do you draw something that is supposed to be witty and funny and yet at the same time is horrible and potentially lethal? Mm-hmm. It is a, a tricky issue um, because people are dying and um it, it's always something that we cartoonists have to grapple with we're, we're, especially you know now we have the president who's um who's got it 
And uh, I had to deal with the issue today. What's, what's the morality? What's the professional ethics about drawing the president? And as for, from that point of view, um, you know, my, my, my sort of ethos, ethics, is, um, is not to go after the people who, who are suffering from COVID, the politicians, and we've had a few in our time. We had uh, the Prime Minister's wife, we've had a couple opposition leaders, and uh, we've, we had Boris Johnson and, and Great Britain. Um, I think it's best if we, as a, as a uh, craft, stay away from that, although I'm seeing people are already going after Trump. It's, there's all kinds of branches that you can offshoot from, from what's going on with the pandemic, and it hasn't really been that much of a challenge. I'm starting to, like I was telling my editor today or a couple of days ago that, um, you know, we're, we're getting into that period where everything is going to be pandemic related now as we go into the second wave. So Yeah, I'm sure that right now, I'm, I'm guessing right now that e, that you could draw a perfect COVID virus germ or whatever we want to call it with your eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been going on that long. It, it you know, they're 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 kind of fun looking. Actually, they're kind of fun to draw. They're like <laughs> balls with little spikes coming out of them, and we've gotten to know what they look like. And, and there's an evolution that's gone with drawing the you know, the virus. It started off as green, and now it's gray with little green spikes attached to them. They're they're like little alien creatures. They're they're kind of whimsical and fun to draw. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's how we that's how we think of COVID, whimsical and fun. <laughs> yeah, that's in years to come when we talk about the history of 2020, it was a whimsical and fun time with that yeah, little exactly. COVID thing. Um, yeah. But I mean, it, it becomes, I would think, a challenge because now, again, it looked like things were getting better, and now we're heading back into. I don't know what we're heading back into. I mean, I don't know. I'm starting to get the sense. I don't know if you are. I'm starting to get the sense that we may be heading back into a let's shut everything down again period. It looks like we're starting to move in that direction. Yeah. But I, I think um, we're we're picking and choosing now, aren't we? We're, we're choosing a little bit of the livelihoods over the lives kind of thing so that we don't completely crush the economy. And I think after going through that whole crushing thing in March and April and May, uh, we're, we're, we're figuring out um, that you can close certain sections of the economy down. You don't have to close down the whole thing. And um, I, I think we've got a better sense of monitoring, uh, although the, the testing is all crazy right now. I think they, they handled the school thing pretty well. Um, and everyone is pretty pretty much on on board with the, the fact that we had to we had to send the kids back to school and figure it out. And before that, we had to figure out how to get the assembly lines, at the big factories working, and you know uh, the shops opening up. And and that was relatively problem free up, you know, and, and continues to be. So uh, obviously, the the nursing home thing was a problem. I think we've sort of figured that out. I think we're better off now going to the second wave than we were uh, initially. And um, well, I've been shocked. I've been shocked, Graham. That maybe not shocked. I don't know. I've been pleasantly surprised. Let's put it this way: we haven't had massive outbreaks in the schools. That was the big fear. We've had some cases, and you know, touching wood that it's not going to. But so far, it's been okay in the schools for the most part. It has, and um, 
And I think people are grateful for that. And I, I think they, they were as flexible as possible. When you think of it, you could, you didn't have to send your kid to school. You could always go virtual. And, and, you know, the, the most concerned people have kept their kids at home. I, I'd love to know, are, are some of the parents out there thinking, well, it's kind of been, you know, a, a bit brutal keeping Johnny at home during this whole time when their friends are going to school and they, they seem to be doing all right. There hasn't been the outbreaks. Um, and then there's a the flexibility. If, if your kid doesn't feel happy about being in school, well, you can start going all day back to, to homeschooling. And I, I think that sort of flexibility is something that they should be applauded for. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Graham, there was one thing, one moment this week that I think caught a lot of people off guard. Were, were you surprised when the interaction happened in Queen's Park between Doug Ford and Kathleen Wynne, where Doug Ford was, I think he caught a lot of people off guard when he said, you know, you've been in my shoes. And so I respect that you asked these questions. Were you surprised at the respect or the reverential, not reverential, that's not the right word, but the respect shown to Kathleen Wynne by him? Mm. Um, could you remind me when did this come after the presidential debate? Just because I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think it was. I think it was a day or so after. I think it was about two days ago that uh, that yeah. Ford, uh, you know, and and maybe you're right. Maybe if that's what you're getting at, maybe it was because he saw that and said, "Okay, I'm going to do the opposite." I don't know, but I think yeah. it caught a lot of people I, off guard. I think that was a factor, and you know, he he's been particularly nasty to the, you know, the only premier of Ontario. Things did did not go well in the first two. Or, how long has he been in office? I guess two years, but the first year of office, yep. he he wasn't very nice to the former premier. And I think what happened with the debate this past week, um, both sides, and I'll say both sides because when I I watched the whole debate, I don't know about you, but um, you know Biden told the president of the United States to shut up. Yeah, you know, he called him, um, and and Trump called him stupid. You know, the decorum of that was not very presidential for either one of them. And perhaps uh, Doug Ford sensed this this sort of um, the reaction from the public towards that was rather negative. I mean, it was all over social media how awful and distasteful the thing was. I think he's done a lot of learning in the in the last few years that he's been premier. And decorum is 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 a very important thing now to Doug Ford, obviously. And um, yeah, good good for him for for sort of making up with the former premier. You know, and, and you talk about decorum. There's another, it's not just the premier and the former premier. I mean, there's another area, and we talked about it on the show yesterday, that has really um, begun to be challenging around here in this province. And that is, and not just in this province, across the country, I guess. And that is, this this idea of mask rage that if you are a mask wearer you are probably now an ardent v- vigorous very loud supporter that everyone should wear a mask and if you're someone who doesn't for whatever reason whether by a medical condition or just because you don't feel you have to you are probably equally dug in on your rights to not wear it uh, mm-hmm. that's becoming an interesting and and difficult thing now that something that should be, I think, just sort of, I don't know, not an angry thing, has become an angry thing. Yeah. Well, remember um, in the first wave, there are people that were getting very upset with people who aren't 
um, social distancing and, or needlessly going to the store like three times a week or something. And then you had very virtuous, like I, I did a cartoon, uh, Captain Virtuous was the guy who was screaming <laughs> at, you know, people who couldn't mask or, you know, they were obviously the, the guy, uh, Captain Virtuous was screaming at the mother in a parking lot who couldn't control, you know, her toddler. And he was screaming, at, well, you are being horrible and anti-masking and blah, blah, blah. I think uh, with, with the masking, and I did a cartoon this past week showing the second wave of covid So I, I think the extremes of mask wearers are a bit deplorable. I think you can have, I think the best guidance is to go by what the health directives tell you. And right now, and I know we went through like a bit, bit of commotion way before when it wasn't as important. And, you know, don't get the mask because the health people need the mask before you do. The advice now is to wear a mask. And I think we should just take that as the, the word right now until it changes again and just go with that. And I, I don't know, when I go into my supermarket, I, I see most of the people wearing masks. And if someone isn't, um, there's obviously an issue there, but you know, I just stay clear of them. I, I, I've reached a point in this one, Graham, where I sort of, am. I mean, I, I don't have a particular, I don't have a dog in this fight either way. Cause on the people who are so ardently anti-mask, I look at and I go, you know, as a common courtesy, since there are so many people scared of this, I know you don't have to wear it, but you know what, just as a courtesy to other people, how about just putting it on? I know that you can find a reason not to. And for the people who say, if you don't, I'm going to die. Well, if you are that ill or if you are that compromised, perhaps it's not a good time to be out of the house. I, I mean, it, it seems like this is one of those things. I know you have rights, but maybe there are moments when, you know what, we can not have to flex our muscles, whichever side you're on every single moment of every single day. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, at the beginning, there were a lot of contrarians, people who just said, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. You know, I know the science and, you know, the know-it-alls out there were saying, I'm not going to do this because I I know I don't have COVID and I don't need to wear a mask. But I think for as a public goodwill gesture, you just wear it. And I think most people are in line with that right now. And whenever, wherever you go, you see people wearing the mask. And you know what? The masks have become kind of a fun thing. I I I like wearing a mask, actually. I, I, I go through Costco and I... I make all kinds of faces under that mask. I don't know about you, but it's a way of, it's a form of expression, you know? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Great story, and I'll let Graham tell it, but about a couple months ago, anyway, I see this posting on social media of a president, a former president of the United States wearing a Graham Mackay designed COVID mask. Graham, take the story away. How did you find out about this? Well, just a little bit of background. Um, uh, in my spare time, I've drawn every president of the United States. I've also drawn every prime minister of Canada and every monarch of England. And I post them on a uh, online 
design shop where they put these designs on T-shirts and, and uh, you know, cups and posters. And more recently, they, they now have masks, uh, face masks. And face masks have all of a sudden become a, a great way to uh, express yourself. And you, you see wonderful expressions out there on people's masks. You see all kinds of designs. So one of my designs was a uh, the smiling mug, the the, the the lips and teeth of Jimmy Carter under the <laughs> Jimmy Carter profile that I have on on the, the website. And someone down in the United States picked up that I had this design. Uh, you know, you just put in the keywords Jimmy Carter, and and it, it sh- shot this person to my website. And that person, according to my uh, data, picked up 20 uh, masks. I don't get a, very many orders for 20 masks. And it came from Georgia. And then someone on the A, uh, the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists Twitter handle asked if any of our, my fellow cartoonists or myself was, was designing a face mask. And I put up my hand up. My I put my hand up and said yes. And I've I've done several. And then someone out of the blue posted this photo of an old man wearing a mask, and it happened to be my mask with Jimmy Carter's mouth on it, smiling mouth. And then um, my wife Wendy went online to to do some comparison of the facial features of this unknown senior citizen who was wearing the mask and compared. Um, age spots on the forehead and made a direct <laughs> link to the president. So Jimmy Carter so was wearing Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was wearing my Jimmy Carter mask. That and is very cool. I, that is very cool. I, and then I went on online and I, I, I picked up a story at the Las Vegas uh, newspaper that um, they did a story on this photo that had been shared with the pianist at the Bellagio Hotel. And it was the exact same photo and it it sort of uh, confirmed to me that, yes, this was Jimmy Carter wearing my mask. And I got further uh, texts from his son, who runs a uh, fan site on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, that, that was the president wearing my mask. So good And him. did he send you a, an autographed copy of it or something? Uh, he hasn't done that, but um, we've had a few back and forths, and, um, and uh, we'll see what happens. News that would be later. very cool. Ah, see, that's that. That is that's a fun story. Um, now you've drawn Jimmy Carter. Obviously, you say you've drawn all the presidents. You've done, drawn Trump. We had you on here once before, and I asked you how do you draw these people and how do you draw Trump. And if I recall your answer, it was his eyebrows. Right? Was the Trump answer was his main feature, which I was surprised by. Yeah, he's got the angry eyebrows. Um, okay. So we know. So you've mentioned how to draw Trump. How do you draw Joseph Biden? or Joe Biden, if you're going to, I mean, if the day comes that he's going to become president, what is the dominant feature of Joe Biden if you're going to draw him, other than a face that seems so tight you could bounce dimes off it? He's had work on his face. Is his, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, obvious. Like, look at him now and compare him to pictures from the 1990s. He looks like a hospital weird. bed. He's so tight. He's, he's pretty tight. His eyes are, are beady. If you notice, it's very dark, and there's not very much white in his eyes. So that's a clear case of stretching of his <laughs> eyes. Uh, and, and he doesn't have big bags under his eyes like a, most 78-year-olds have. 
And so that's interesting. But, you know, the, the main feature about him uh, is his hair, the back of his hair. And I do comparisons with my own father. He's got the same thing, where the hair kind of curls in behind his neck. And I don't think a lot of the cartoonists have picked that up, but I always make sure that I put that in because that's a that's a giveaway that you're dealing with uh, Biden as we evolve and try to figure out how to draw him. And as you evolve, you talk about evolving with this. If he becomes president, the cartoon that is drawn of him today will be vastly different. Am I correct from the one over four years, assuming he lasts that long, uh, that, that would be what you would be drawing four years from now? Because they always become exaggerated. Well, you know, he, he has been around for a while, right? He was he was Obama's vice president. So I, I've drawn him since, what, 2008? Um, but American cartoonists will go way back. But now that he's, there's a good chance he could be elected. We'll see. Yeah, um, well, it, it, you know, it will, it, he'll morph depending on how he does as, as president, just as every president kind of morphs. Um, and depending on what uh, side of the spectrum you're coming from there, if you look at some of the uh, cartoonists who drew Obama, his ears just kept getting bigger and bigger and his face got kind of thinner and smaller <laughs> as time went by. And uh, <laughs> there's one guy, Michael Ramirez, he, that's all he draws, basically a, a stick face with big giant ears uh, by the end of uh, his presidency. But, you know, Ramirez is a conservative, so... Uh, that it's a different outlook from, say, someone who's more from the, uh, the liberal side of the spectrum. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Graham, let me pick up what I just said before the break. I am somewhat puzzled why we need an election campaign. Now, this one's been a little different and a little shorter, mercifully, from one of the from the usual presidential campaigns that seem to go on for three years. But uh, is there anybody whose opinion is not made up yet, who's going to be voting in the U.S. election? Is there anyone whose mind is going to change by anything that happens? I, I don't see it. Mm. Well, according to people I know, they they decided that they didn't have a decision after the debate. And I found that kind of shocking. I even posted it. Oh, no, if you, post, you don't know who you're voting for at this point. Are you serious? Like, I, I don't, you know... I, I don't understand how there is even a choice. I don't, I don't even know. And I, I hate to show my colors. I don't know how Trump is even in contention with what's going on in the world right now. Uh, you've got a pandemic. You know, now the, the whole expose on his taxes has just been released. Um, there's racial problems like protests and things like that. And, and all this talk of white supremacy happening in the United States. Things are not good in the United States. And, you know, the, the, the famous refrain, are you better off now than you were four years ago, has not been uttered very much. I don't get why. Why isn't Biden capitalizing on that? Because clearly things are not better off now than they were four years ago. I don't understand why that isn't being mentioned. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know what, how anyone could be undecided at this point, quite frankly. Oh, well, I don't know how they could be undecided, but uh, to, to answer your question, maybe, I think there's an awful lot of people who look and they say, yeah, you know what, um, Trump is a disagreeable, unpleasant guy, but I don't know that Biden is coherent and all there. And what amazes me, Graham, is... Mm. 
of all, you've got 360 million Americans, something like that. How are, when you whittle it right down, how are these two your only and last and real options for president? How can this be what emerges at the top of the pyramid or in the, as the cream of the crop or something? How, how is there not other better people who end up in these mm. positions to be chosen like that that to me is the di- yeah i you know what as i say trump is not a pleasant guy there's no question about that but i think a lot of other people look and go well is biden he's a, he's maybe a nicer guy but is he mm. like is the choice that much better i, I don't know yeah. they, they clearly didn't think that about hillary they thought she was no. you you've got two people who were so unlikable they were really the only two people who could have beaten each other mm-hmm but you're, you're also dealing with two candidates who um, were the choice amongst – add up all the other people who ran against Biden, add up all the people who ran against Trump uh, four years ago. These are the best – That this is the cream of the crop that came out of, what, 40 people? Yeah. 40 people when you combine the conservative, the, uh, the Republicans and, and the Democrats. Like, this is something that is un- unimaginable um, going back to any – uh, past slate of elections, uh, slate of, of choices that we've had. It's usually you have three or four candidates, and they're whittled down to 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 the, the last one. And and so there's such a vast array, and it just shows you how um, uh, divided each party actually is. And then they have to rally uh, around this one candidate. You know, Biden has his haters. But they're all sort of reluctantly, you know, saying, oh, he's the best one. And there's some people that say, oh, I'm not going to vote for Biden. I'm not I'm, I'm going to stay home. The same way for the um, the Republicans. You have the Lincoln Project and all these conservatives who don't want anything to do with Trump. So it's it's divided and divided even more amongst the parties. Yeah, because you've right now, I mean, Biden in the debate said the other day that, you know, he rejects the Green New Deal and rejects the Bernie Sanders far left. But there's a lot of people who say, well, wait a second, his vice president is way, way, way left. And there's a lot of people and not to be morbid who don't think that Biden's going to last for four years and that Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris becomes the president. And so we can't vote for him because we don't really want those way, way, way left policies. But then you've got Trump and we don't want him. Look, what I just can't figure out is how you can't find better. And and maybe it's Mm -hmm. because it's so destructive that a lot of good people say, I don't want to go in there because I don't need my life turned upside down and ripped apart. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. it. I don't know. But look what it takes to become the president of the United States, you have to go through a serious vetting process. Like like years and years and so much money has to go into it. And it it's just unfathomable. And it's the only place in the world where where you have to go through so many hoops to get to where you are. And it's becoming more and more impossible um, as time goes on. So this is the best, but it, it all takes, it, it's not just brains it's money it's the machinery behind it yeah yeah uh, but but even that and we got to go we got to take a break here but even the machinery surely the machinery could spit out some better candidate it's just it's remarkable to me that this is the best they can do and even you know some people who are now lauding kamala harris as this great hope she finished fourth in the democrats Mm -hmm. they didn't even want her so you Mm -hmm. know like she could have been your candidate if they'd wanted as the democrats and that was not good enough so you know i i I don't i don't quite understand but you know so be it you get to choose between two 
between these two and, you know, plug your nose if you're an American and cast a ballot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring Graham Mackay back in. Editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator, the leading number one undisputed editorial cartooning champion of Canada. At least that's how Mm. I position it and how your wife positions it, I know as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I believe that this is, I, I've said this many times when you've been on the show and I'm going to say it again because not everyone hears every time. I think your job is the hardest one in the media and you are the best at it in the country. And I don't know how you do it day after day, but I applaud you for it because uh, the spec and Hamilton is lucky to have you. So there you go. Could you remind now let's, our boss, please? Ben? Yes. Yeah. Now let's see your head fit through the door back into your bedroom tonight. Yeah. <laughs> in our, my pandemic bedroom. <laughs> well, now that we never leave, you just, you know, do you even, how many cartoons have you drawn since March in your pajamas or your underwear? Honestly. Every one of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, in orange t-shirts and, you know, shorts and sometimes, yeah, just underwear. Nobody will know, but now they do. Now they do. Yes. Well, it, you know, it's inspiration to have the, you know, the comfort <laughs> That's there. I, I, we, I, I've been trying to think of what is the area that I've saved the most money on because of this pandemic. And it's got, it's come down to, it's either gas for my car, which I've saved a ton on, or yeah. it's coffee at the cafeteria at work, or what? it's clothing because I mean, who needs to buy clothes, any clothes when you're just working at home and you're grubs all the, all day long. Right. And, and laundry, you know, you don't have to wash your clothes. You can, Smell as much as you want. Well, yeah. I mean, you have kids at home too. I, you know, I have people at home here. I mean, there's a limit there. They, they will tell you at a certain point that your creativity has reaped a stage of ripeness that perhaps you don't need to be quite so creative. <laughs> you don't need to be quite so artistic. Yes. Well, we remind each other in this household that we smell or are ripe for picking. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it is amazing though. When um, uh, I, I would I've thought about doing this before. I haven't done it yet. At mornings, the Spectator has a Zoom like a Zoom call with the staff for the newsroom, and I've I've long been tempted to say, okay, everybody on the video stand up, just to see who's wearing <laughs> pants. <laughs> but I'm I'm slightly terrified that somebody might, and you know. Mm, there's, there's, yeah. you know, it, it may be a little bit dangerous to do that. But anyway, yes, I, I'm sure there has been lots of great journalism done since March. Pantsless. <laughs> <laughs> something, to, something to ponder when the awards season comes around. Uh, this is something that I don't know that you ever expected you were going to be talking about on the show today. But there is a story. It's on. It's up at thespec.com right now. It's, you can find it at the Star website. You can find it. It's a story by uh, a reporter at the Waterloo region record the what used to be the kitchener waterloo record and the name has changed a few times terry pender is his name he's an excellent reporter and it's an amazing story and it is about the last as i understand it and i've got to read this again because it's 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 a heavy story for sure and it's long and it's well worth reading the last believed suspected nazi war criminal essentially who is still living in canada who um, apparently is still in the Waterloo area. Um, it's a fascinating story about this, this now very elderly guy 
um, who was uh, – I knew you were going to ask me that question. I, I believe he's now in his 90s. And he – the story goes that he came here sometime after the war and got through our – vetting system somehow and went on to start a business and have a very successful business and a very good life. And over the last 30 years, give or take, there have been efforts to take away his citizenship or to do something with him. And he keeps winning in court to win it back and they take it away and he wins it back. The story is that he is believed to have been been involved in a unit with the Nazis that killed 130,000 people doesn't say that he specifically killed any of them, but he was, they believe, involved in this unit. I can't pronounce the name of it. I apologize. My German is very poor. But Graham, I mean, look, you are someone who you talked about last hour, how, you know, one of your hobbies is drawing presidents and prime ministers. You're you're a guy who appreciates and loves history. Mm -hmm. Does it shock you at all to understand, to, to hear or to, suspect or believe that after the war that there might have been Nazi criminals, war criminals that escaped and landed in Canada. We hear about Argentina, we hear about Brazil, all this stuff, mm-hmm. but Canada, like, is it, is that mm-hmm. easy to believe? Oh, they, they land in America and they get extradited back to Germany and, or to Israel and they, they face war trials. No, it's it's not surprising at all. We're a very open country. We we allow people from every country to come to this great land of ours, and I'm not surprised at all that that you know it's not just Germany. It's people from other countries of the world where, where atrocities have been um, um, have been carried out, and and so I'm not surprised that we still have a few people left from from the Second World War. Uh, the, the story says that, um, th- so there was a commission of inquiry on war criminals that was struck several decades ago to look into this and 774 cases of suspected Nazi war criminals were open in Canada. Now, 606 of those were closed in time because the suspects had died or left the country, or there was no evidence to back up the claims, but so seven, say say three quarters, seven hundred and seventy four people who potentially did horrific things in the war that our borders, our system didn't stop them. And I I don't know over recent years because we've had more recent ones, not Nazis, but other terrorists or other people who have made it in here. I, I mean, I'm not sure that we're that much better at sorting out who's coming or going at this point. I don't know. Mm. Well, it says something about our vetting process. You know, I, uh, people who come into this country, I thought, you know, you spend a lot of money uh, before they become citizens. Uh, you would think that uh, external affairs, foreign affairs, or whatever you want to call it, does a little bit of uh, investigation on who these people are coming into the country. Uh, and you would expect that would have happened right after the Second World War or whatever war has happened ever since then. So how, well, especially, people, especially right after. Yes. How these people get lost in the system. Well, there's obviously, um, there's people that are part of this country and part of the bureaucracy of this country that had a, that have let these people come in, um, and, and not question, uh, their, their living in this country. 
but we also this story goes on and i would encourage people to read it i mean it it, it is a it is a long read it is well worth the read though and again you can find it at the spec.com you can find it a bunch of different places um once they realized or came to believe that this person was who they believed he was efforts have been made to do something and yet every time an effort has been made to take away his canadian citizenship or take away his passport or do mm-hmm. whatever it's been rebuffed, which again, when I look at this, I think that does not sound like something that should be all that difficult. If you can establish somehow with any reasonable certainty that this person, whether pulling the trigger or just being party to some unit that killed 130,000 people, surely we have a mechanism in this country to get rid of them. You would think. Um, But, you know, these these people are entitled to the courts and and the legal process. And if it's just kind of this thing that's happening without a lot of exposure in the media, then it's just going to go on and on and on and forgotten about. But I can guarantee now that it's the press has picked up on it, that it's going to become more of a thing that uh, shines a light on this guy. And he might be 96 years old, but he's still a guy who carried on atrocities in his lifetime. And, you know, just because he's an old guy, it, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't uh, take him out of what what's demanded of our civil society. You know, he's got to pay the price. And well, that was, that's the next part about this. There's a, there is a debate and there always has been a debate about what do you do at this point with people who may have done horrible things in 1941 or 42 or 43. I mean, are you of the belief that it doesn't matter what time has passed, that there's no statute of limitations, you still pay the price for this? Hey, you know what? He's probably a lovely old man, with but he's got a dark past. And uh, you know, we we jail train robbers when they're caught in their eighties after being on the lam for thirty years. What for robbing trains? Well, this guy killed hundreds of thousand people, or he's behind that sort of thing. So, you know, whatever we give the train robber, we got to give to the. Uh, the guy who's behind atrocities. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, like I, no, I, I fully agree. I mean, I don't, I don't think that there can be a, a time limit on this because especially because of the idea that I do believe, and someone can correct me on this. Maybe even you can correct me on this, Graham, but I, I believe that at the time that when the war was over and we were admitting people from Europe and from Germany, that it, there were, um, there was a screening process and and you were not permitted to come over here if you had been involved in atrocities. I think we had, you probably would have had to have make something up on your form to get in. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you lied, you know, but you know, lying is a, an offense. You right. So that should disqualify you. That you lie, yeah. You, you, you know, it's like you lie on your resume. You say that you've got a master's degree in something and you're found out later. You suffer the consequences for that. If you, lied on your application when you came into the country, you know, I'm sure the application is still in the records in Ottawa somewhere. You can pull that out. And if you lied, but you've got verifiable evidence that, you know, you did committed these horrible things when you cross check with the German documents, then you, you forfeited your rights. You become part of the uh, justice system and too bad. 
What about the argument? And some people will make this argument. We've heard this argument before that, you know what, at this point though, his family is here. His children are here. His grandchildren, I suppose, are here. Um, You know, it's a hardship on them to have to have him sent back or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, look, did you, I don't know if you saw the, um, uh, there's a a documentary on Netflix. uh, Mm -hmm. I believe it's called the devil next door about yeah, um what's uh, what's, i'm trying to think of the name well yeah he was um i'll think of it in just a second um who was, was in ohio i believe it was yes right? yeah and he was a nazi who worked at the at the gas chambers um yeah. and i will think of it in just a moment here um but the, the argument was uh y- you know what at a certain point time has passed and you know he's now just a you know, a productive, I mean, it sounds awful to say it, I suppose, but a productive member of society who's of no mm-hmm. danger to anybody anymore. I, mm-hmm. I don't believe that. Again, I think you should, if you are, if there is evidence that you were involved in this stuff, I think you have to pay the price. It doesn't matter how far yeah. down the road. If we found out someone murdered yeah. someone 50 years ago, we don't say, well, he's a nice guy now. Yeah, it, it's a gripping uh, series and I encourage anyone to watch it out there. Um, but, you know, there's also survivors of that time who had to go through the grief and have had to go through the grief. You had 90-year-old people who know the name of this guy and know who he is, and they're still alive. Um, just because we're of a younger generation, I don't think we're. it's right to, to just brush off um, the history that doesn't really affect us as well. Um, the, the people who've had to live all their lives knowing their own family members have died because of the actions of this guy maybe you know, 75 years ago, they deserve rights as well. John Demianyuk, by the way, was uh, right. Ivan the Terrible, was the, the guy who was in the movie, in the documentary mm-hmm. series, The Devil Next Door, which, by the way, if you have Netflix... My goodness, what an amazing documentary that is uh, mm-hmm. to watch. But uh, and, and again, it seems rather fitting now with this story that uh, that is out just now about this this guy in in Waterloo region who, you know, I look, I the it seems reading this that the government is very convinced that this guy is who they believe he is. The other challenge then becomes Graham is. It's now been, uh, what's the math from, let's say, mid 40s. So we're talking about almost 80 years, right? Mm-hmm. Since the since these atrocities happened, we're getting close to 80 years since the Second World War. I mean, how mm-hmm. how how much can you how much can you prove? I mean, at, at this point, it, it, because all mm-hmm. the witnesses are gone too. So you know, it's 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 almost like the 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 door has been opened too long, and now it's impossible to close it. Yeah, it's uh, well. That's the wonderful thing about that series is that it, it it tugs at all kinds of emotions, right? And you know, um, you know, I'm I'm a guy who goes into my genealogy, and so I'm unearthing all kinds of horrific things that have happened in my family, and every family has horrors that have happened, and we do the best to bury them, and I'm sure it horrified this family. To, to know about this living member of their family, grandpa or great grandpa or whoever John Demaniac was to to people, to, to learn about this must be a horrible thing for them to 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 realize. And 
but we all have skeletons in our closet and uh, you can either keep them buried or you unearth them. You learn a little bit about history actually that way. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'd, I'm a proponent of digging up the skeletons, find out what happened, know about what your family members did and know that it's a bad thing and not to repeat them. You know, I would go into the whole other discussion about skeletons and whether or not that means statues should come down, but uh, sadly we are <laughs> we are out of time, especially to get into one that would be that difficult. But um, listen, Graham Mackay, uh, editorial cartoonist, The Spectator, you can see his stuff today. Young Doug Ford makes a reappearance in his editorial <laughs> cartoon today. Um, right. The ongoing saga of young Doug Ford. If you've never seen that, go again to thespec.com or pick up the paper. You will see that there. Graham, look, we always love having you on here. Thanks for taking some time tonight. Really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, that is, uh, as I say, Canada's best editorial cartoonist. Um, if you need proof of that, and I'm not being paid by that, and, and you know he doesn't pay me for this, honest, honest, uh, go look around at the other editorial cartoons in this country, and you will see how lucky we are to have Graham here in Hamilton. Uh, really um, best at his job anywhere in the country. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.